Well, good morning, church. Great to see you this morning. Thank the Lord for another beautiful day to worship Him. And uh, I want you to take your Bibles and turn to Luke's Gospel, chapter number 10. We'll get there in just a moment as we continue this series in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. We do have some special guests here today. I want to recognize them as we get started. First of all, Tom and Tanya Shepard are here, and they uh, were with us in Sunday school. Also, Tanya is speaking tonight at the ladies' event at 4 o'clock right here in the youth center tonight. You don't want to miss this. It's just going to be wonderful. Let's welcome Tom and Tanya Shepard. Thank you for being with us. And then... You will also get to meet them later in the service, but I also just want to say a big welcome to uh, Josh Kimball and the team from All Nations Soccer right here in the third row. Great guys. Let's welcome them to River City Baptist Church. I can't wait, can't wait to share with you what some of the things that are going to happen. Today's message is going to be a bit revelatory. We're going to talk about some things that God's doing here, doors he's opening, ways we're going to be involved uh, with our community. So uh, we're going to get to that in just a minute. And uh, also want to uh, have uh, Brother Scott and Miss Patty come on up here. We need to uh, welcome them to River City Baptist Church. They're going to come. And uh, they've been attending here for um, numbers of weeks and have been through our new members orientation. And today uh, the Payne family has come to join River City Baptist Church. So, boy, I'm excited about that. Let's welcome them. And... Uh, I need a motion to receive them into membership, made, seconded, all in favor, say amen. amen. Man, this is a great family. I'm so excited that God brought you here and looking forward to God using their gifts and abilities here to serve our church and to uh, partner with us in ministry. And so welcome to River City Baptist Church. We're so glad to have you. Let's welcome them one more time as they find their seats. What is that? Do you want the membership fee now? Yeah, membership fee. Yeah, 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 yeah. Let's see, check, check written to me, is that right? <laughs> oh, so great, so great, so great. Wonderful family. You guys are going to enjoy getting to know them. And uh, they have some amazing gifts and abilities that God has brought together at River City. And I, I just get so excited when I look and see all the different ages and all the different ethnicities and all the different religious backgrounds, uh, different church experiences coming together at this place, making it just a wonderful place to be. And uh, I, hope you, uh, I hope you sense the presence of the Lord and the worship today as I did. And it's just a great, great experience. And, and I'm, I'm thankful for it. I just, I just believe, I believe God's doing great things and uh, we're in for a treat. And, and I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, just kind of buckle your seatbelt this morning, okay? Because there are, there are some amazing things coming up. And we will want and need every single person to be a participant in what God is doing here. Because it takes a tribe. It's not just a pastor. It's not just a group of leaders. It takes all of us to do and participate in what God's doing. I want to draw your attention to Luke's gospel, chapter number 10, verse number 25. In what arguably would be maybe the most famous parable of all. The Lord taught in parables. They were earthly stories revealing heavenly truths. Most of what we've done in this study so far has been looking at his life. We have covered a few parables, kingdom parables, in Matthew's gospel. But there are all of these really memorable parables. In fact, in the next several weeks, we'll be looking at some of them. In the next several weeks, we'll look at uh, ones like the prodigal son and others. But today, uh, our timeline takes us to the parable of the Good Samaritan. So let's read along, if you'll follow me in verse 25. Behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, 
what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said unto him, you have answered rightly, do this and you will live. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And then Jesus answered and said, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a certain priest came down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at that place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. He set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii, and gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come, I will repay you. So which of these three among, or excuse me, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, He who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. Amen. This is God's word. I want to preach to you this morning on the subject, passing by on the other side. Passing by on the other side. Angie showed me a video this week of a group of people at a very busy intersection in Boynton Beach, Florida, where police were searching, not for somebody that did something wrong, but actually searching for a group of people that they labeled as good Samaritans. A woman had pulled up to a stoplight and had passed out with a medical emergency. And her car continued to drift out into this six-lane highway at a four-way intersection. Very dangerous and very busy. Her co-worker stepped out of her car first and went running after the car and tried to attempt to slow the car down, but obviously was unsuccessful. And as you can see in the video, she begins to yell and call out to all sorts of other people that were nearby. Before it's all over with, there are probably about eight men and women that have got out, stopped the car, broken the window, rescued the woman, to make a long story short. They said, of course, these people were heroes. And it's often when you see a story like this in the news that they will attach the statement, Good Samaritan, to whoever this is that does it. Basically... A good Samaritan, biblically, would be somebody who helps somebody else out in a time of need. It's not really that complicated. And yet, I, I have to ask the question this morning, it seems like what was historically true of the church, that the church was very essential to community, was very essential to uh, stability in society. In fact, uh, Heritage Foundation, in a remarkable article notated historically the enormous positive impact 
by religion on social stability historically. Uh, the strength of the family unit has been intertwined historically with the practice of going to church faithfully. Churchgoers, as they say, are more likely to be married, less likely to be divorced or single, and have a higher marital satisfaction in marriage. The practice of religion helps poor persons move out of poverty. Regular church attendance, for example, they say, is particularly instrumental in helping young people escape the poverty of inner city life. Religious belief and practice contribute substantially to the formation of personal moral criteria and sound judgment. Regular religious practice generally inoculates individuals against a host of social problems like suicide, drug abuse, out of wedlock, pregnancies, crime, and divorce. And I could go on and on and on and on. I think we all know historically that it has been true that people who were of the faith, not only themselves were benefited greatly from that faith, but also those people collectively benefited the community and the world at large through their faith that led to their actions in their community and in their society. But why does it seem like today religion and churches in particular have become so irrelevant? I mean, we actually heard language for the first time in 2020 that churches were actually not essential. But let me explain something to you. It did not take the coronavirus to reveal that many churches were not essential. Many churches had become non-essential long before the coronavirus ever hit them. And I, I think really what's happened in many churches, and sad to say I think in some ways even our own, is that the church has become so isolated and self-focused that we have built walls around us to protect our conservative values to neglect those among us who are the most needy around us. While the world is lying like this man broken and battered in a ditch on the side of the road, the church of Jesus Christ has conveniently passed by on the other side and allowed other people to take up the responsibility to care for those most vulnerable and broken. I must say this to you today, nothing is more like Jesus than when a church cares for those that actually need him. And nothing is more not like Jesus than when the church conveniently passes by on the other side, totally ignoring the culture and the community around them. Jesus is going to expose this problem to a self-righteous lawyer who comes to Jesus and asks him a very misguided question. In fact, let's back up to the beginning of this parable in verse number 25. Now just watch this. Behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? May I say this? This is a question laden with problems. Particularly, the most important problem in this entire question are the two words, I do. What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Now, Jesus could have given a very short answer to this question. He could have said, nothing. Because that's actually the answer to the question. What can you do to inherit eternal life? Absolutely nothing. Listen to me very carefully. The difference between life and death, the difference between heaven and hell, 
The difference between having a genuine faith of following Christ and one that doesn't follow Christ is really a matter of two letters. You see, religion says, I do. Christianity says, Jesus has already done. The difference between being born again and not, the difference between knowing that you have Jesus and you don't, is the difference between the word do and the word done. When I am asking the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life, I am assuming that there is some set of rules that I can keep, there are certain sets of actions that I can perform, that when they are done appropriately and ultimately, I am going to earn eternal life. Folks, i got to tell you, nothing can be further from the truth. The Bible says it is by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. The very fact of the matter is, there's nothing that you can do to inherit eternal life. We should be asking the question, what has been done for me? Knowing that I cannot attain eternal life on my own, what has been done for me that I might be forgiven of my sins and and, and allowed an opportunity to have a relationship with God? And that, friends, is what Jesus Christ came to do when he came to this earth. In fact, when he died on the cross, he said words that we keep in front of our church every single Sunday. He said these words, it is finished. Now listen to me very carefully, church. There is literally nothing more that you can do that Jesus has not already done. Nothing that you can do. No no amount of church you can attend. No amount of money that you can give. No amount of works that you perform or good deeds that you can do can earn eternal life. Jesus Christ did it all. And we, by faith, accept his sacrifice as our payment, as the means of our salvation. But this is really interesting. Jesus doesn't necessarily go right at the answer like he could have. Rather, Jesus turns around and says, I don't know. What is written in the law? How do you read the law? And the man comes back and he says, well, I read that you should love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and your neighbor is yourself. So if you love God and you love your neighbor, you're good to go. Now Jesus then turns around and he says, you answered rightly. Now watch, this is important. Do this and you will live. In other words, if you can somehow keep all the law perfectly without breaking it, you're going to be good to go. The problem, obviously, is that nobody can do that because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But the key to this whole thing is in verse 29. In verse 29, he, wanting to justify himself, said, who then is my neighbor? Now, there's two ways to look at the law. If you are a religious person, you will look at the law as an attempt to justify yourself by proving to everybody all the things that you do. But if you are a Christian, you look at the law and you realize there's no way I could fulfill the law on my own. Somebody must have fulfilled it for me. And for all the times I've not done what God wanted me to do, I need somebody to forgive me and no longer hold me responsible for the things that I've done. And friend, I've got to tell you, there's only one place that happens and that is in the Lord Jesus Christ because he perfectly fulfilled the law for you because you could not do it on your own because he was the son of God. And then he died a death. You could not die on your own as the son of God. Gave up his life on the cross and then rose from the dead the third day to offer eternal life to anyone who would believe. This young man that came to Jesus didn't want to be saved. He wanted to show Jesus how good of a guy he really was. And now Jesus is going to turn around and show him You don't have what it takes. 
And he does so by giving the illustration of the parable of the Good Samaritans. Now, I want to break this apart and then make an application if I could. Number one, I want you to see a man in a grave condition. Jesus introduces the parable of the Good Samaritan by telling this story about this man who had an unfortunate day of falling among people that took advantage of him. Verse 30, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Here is a man that was traveling from Jerusalem, uh, Jericho to Jerusalem. Excuse me. It was a 17-mile journey. Uh, historians and geog geographical people would tell us that this was a, a, a road that had a mountainous journey, naturally going to Jerusalem. And that, that on this road, there were lots of caves and crevices in the sides of the mountain. And it made a perfect opportunity for people to hide and ambush those that were coming by. This was a dangerous and treacherous road. This man, obviously, uh, either was by himself or his friends didn't help him out when they were ambushed. But in, in, in natural order, these thieves would jump out, attack people, and rob them just like they did this guy. In short order, this man was abandoned, he was abused, he was taken advantage of, he was robbed, he was helpless, watch it, and he needed somebody to rescue him. Now, there's only really one difference between you and me and this guy, and it's at the end of verse number 30. It says this, leaving him half dead. Now, this man had one up on you and me because he was only half dead. The Bible says not only are we all those things that this guy was, abandoned, deserted, broken, fallen apart, hopeless, he at least was only half dead. The Bible says of our spiritual condition that we are not half dead, we are fully dead. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 says, you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses in sins. When the prodigal son came home, what did the father say? This my son was dead. Dead and is alive again. Ephesians 2.12 says at that time we were without Christ. We were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. We were strangers from the covenant of promise. We had no hope and we were without God. That is everybody's condition, but particularly listen to me very carefully. That is the condition of people outside of Christ and outside these walls. Such brokenness, such devastation, such loneliness, such abandonment, such wounds. Psalm 42, I cried to the Lord with my voice, with my voice, I cried to the Lord, I make my supplication, I poured out my complaint before him, I declare before him my trouble when my spirit was overwhelmed within me. They had secretly laid a snare for me. Look on my right hand and see. There is no one who acknowledges me. Refuge has failed me. No man cares for my soul. And that's really where we are today. We live in a community. And it's not just this community. It's any community. Our church, fortunately, is situated right in the dead center of a community. And this community is one of the most needy communities in the entire city of Jacksonville. 60% people that live in this community right around us are single mother homes. We tried to start a father's ministry at Lake Lucina Elementary School last year only to find that there were so few fathers in that community bringing those kids to school that we had to change the ministry to include mothers and grandmothers and aunts and uncles, those that were actually raising the children. 
You can imagine how difficult and challenging it is in a relatively poor community, uh, uh, certainly a middle class or lower. And the sins, I was talking to uh, 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 Brother Jim Morissetti who works over at uh, Terry Parker High School. And I think it was last week alone, I think he told me, seven fights in one week in that public school right around the corner from our church. I mean, it just I could go on and on and on and on and on. This community around us is like this man. It is broken, it is desperate, it has been left alone. Churches, on the other hand, while this man was in his grave condition, the second thing we see here is that relig- there were religious people that had no concern for others. I mean, it's one thing that the guy was broken. It would have been another thing if the guy had somebody to help him. But here's the problem. The problem was he was right there in the middle of it all. He was right there, yes, he was abandoned, and yes, he was hurt, but he had opportunity to be rescued by, watch this, religious people that had every opportunity to do something about it. And the Bible says, specifically, there were two of these religious people. First of all, there was a priest in verse number 31. By chance, there was a priest. A priest was a descendant of Aaron. He was the highest official in the Jewish religion. Uh, and to put it into modern terms, in our world, this was a pastor, this was a pastor or this was a, a priest if it was a Catholic church or this was an imam of a Muslim church or whatever it was. This is a spiritual leader, somebody who probably was paid to do religious work. And this man who probably was dressed for work, probably was ready for work, literally passed by on the other side of the road, no doubt, to continue on to his important ministry work. And then there's a Levite. A Levite would have been a descendant of Levi who carried out religious worship and operations, more mundane tasks. He would have been essentially like a religious assistant or a priest helper. Now, I'm not exactly sure why they did what I know for sure. I know that they were professional ministers who grossly failed the test of what ministry is really all about. Please listen very carefully. Ministry is working with people. That's what ministry is. And any time what we are doing in the name of religion, come on, that gets in the way of us actually helping, ministering to, and caring for actual people is a problem, and it gets in the way of what we should actually be doing. You can almost see these guys in their clean, fancy, religious clothing, like coming to church and their suits and ties and their dresses, so consumed with looking good for getting to their meeting that they could not possibly fathom getting down on their hands and knees, getting in the dirt, and getting a little blood on their ties because they had somewhere to be. Maybe they were busy churchmen with tight schedules and budget meetings and church operations and keeping the people of the church happy so they had to have meetings with trustees and meetings with deacons and and financial meetings and they had to make sure they were at every little church gathering all the times the senior adults would get together to uh, have fellowship and every time the couples had something and every time every time the children had an activity you could just see a professional minister bouncing around from party to party and fellowship to fellowship and thing to thing and meeting to meeting all the while somebody's bleeding out and dying right in front of him they have become deadened to the real needs that lay right before him and conveniently passed 
goodbye to more important things. Please listen to me this morning. There is nothing more important than caring for people. Somebody needs you and somebody needs you today. Right outside of my office, every time I walk out the door of my office, there's a plaque. I had it intentionally put there, and it says this, pray for and care for someone today. Pray for and care for someone today. Do not be so caught up in being religious and being busy and being spiritual and being a churchy person that we fail to acknowledge that God put us here not just to love God with all of our heart, soul, and mind, but also by loving him and through loving him, we love our neighbor as ourselves. And listen, church, love is not a feeling word. Love is an action word. So these religious people pass by without concern for others. It sounds like us, doesn't it? It sounds like us, doesn't it? I mean, I mean just, just ask yourself. This is not hard. This would not take a mathematical equation to figure out. This would not take like two years of, of sociological study of your psyche to figure out. It's real simple. Have you cared for anybody this week? Have you, or have you been like this guy? These guys, finding a way to pass by anybody and everybody's need. I mean, has there been one person that I've prayed for, one person that I've stopped and did something for, one person, I mean, I'm just thinking even just more like immediately in our church right now, we just had two babies born in our congregation. It would be very easy to pass by on the other side and not think somebody could probably use a a meal, somebody could probably use a phone call, somebody could probably use uh, uh, maybe a gift card to go out and do something. There's ways that you can get involved with that and I hope that you will. And it's very easy for us to think, well, the church is sending out emails and the church is sharing all these opportunities. Somebody's going to get to that. Folks, we've got to stop thinking somebody is going to get to that. And we've got to start thinking by the grace of God, I'm going to get to that. Which leads me to the last part. And that is an intervention from an unlikely source. (laughs) An intervention from an unlikely source. You know the story. The religious people pass by on the other side, but then there's the Samaritan. And you may not, it may not be as clear in your mind what Samaritans were, so let me just give you just a, a brief history. In 722 BC, the Assyrians invaded Israel, northern Israel, and literally plundered Israel. And, 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 and of those people that remained, of all the devastation, the Assyrians and the Israelites began to intermarry and produce offspring and children that became the Samaritans. And in a a Bible map, you'd see Judah is in the bottom. And then you see also that uh, Israel or Judea, or excuse me, uh, Galilee is in the north. Remember the story in John 4 when Jesus said, I must needs go through Samaria? You may not be aware of this, but that was an intentional move by Jesus. If I had a map up here, which I never take the time to do that, probably should. But if I had a map up here, you'd see that Jerusalem up to Galilee, you could walk directly through Samaria. But Israel hated Samaria so much that when they wanted to get from Jerusalem to Galilee, they would actually go out around, go over the Jordan River, out and around Samaria and recross the Jordan River back into Galilee just to avoid these people because they hated them so bad. 
I just love how Jesus uses one of these people, one of these people that we would not think is a big deal, one of these people that we might even think is an outcast. But I want to say something to you this morning. I would rather be an outcast Samaritan that has a heart for other people than a priest just doing religious work. At least he showed compassion. I could read to you so many places in the Bible that talk about compassion. I, I, I looked it up this week. It's actually staggering. Matthew 9, 36, Jesus was moved with compassion. Mark chapter number 1, the man comes to him looking for healing, and Jesus, again, has compassion. Luke chapter 7, the woman is burying her son, the widow of Nain. She's already lost her husband. And what does Jesus do? He has compassion. You look this word up in the Old Testament, and it's used Literally like 9.9 out of 10 times it's used of the character of God. I only found a couple times in the entire Bible that compassion is spoken of of a person. Uh, for instance, uh, Exodus chapter 2. The Hebrew midwives and the, I mean, the Egyptian midwives that were uh, given the task of, of uh, destroying the boys that were born in Moses' day. And you see that Moses' family went and they hid Moses because they saw he was a good child. And Moses was hid over there on the side of the river. And what happened? Pharaoh's daughter comes to bathe herself. And she hears the baby crying. And she opens up the little basket, the little ark that they made for him. And the Bible says she was moved with compassion and did something to preserve the boy's life. And then you read over in Jude chapter 22, it's a challenge, or verse 22, it's a challenge to us of some have what? Compassion making a difference. I want to say two things about compassion. Number one, the overwhelming majority of the use of the word compassion in the Bible is a description of God. You want to know why? God is the source of compassion. We know how to be compassionate because there is the image of God in every person. When you see somebody that's hurting and broken, especially if you're a Christian, but sad to say, some people that aren't even Christians have more compassion on others in need than even those that know Christ. Compassion, secondly, is always connected to an action. When you have compassion on somebody, it leads you to do something. And so the Samaritan stopped. He took time. I'm sure the Samaritan was just as busy as the priest and the Levite. I'm sure the Samaritan had a schedule to keep. I'm sure he had somewhere to be. But it didn't stop him from taking time. Unless you think he just kind of pulled over and stopped for a second. Oh, no, 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 no. No, he got down in this man's mess. He cleaned up his mess with oil and wine. Then he picked up the man. He picked up another, come on, another full-grown man. He picked another man up, put him on his animal, which indicates that he then walked the rest of the way to the nearest hotel. This wasn't just an hour, friend. This wasn't just dropping a dollar in a, in a beggar's cup on the side of the street. This guy took his entire day to do something for this man. Good night. When's the last time we took a day for somebody? An hour for somebody. Do your plans allow you to give up an occasional day, an occasional hour to serve others in needs? When we say things like, man, I would, but I don't have time for this, what we're really saying is the time I could have used for that, I used for something else because that was more. You all, we all have time. 
The question is, what is important to us is where we spend our time. And guys, I got to tell you, there has to be somewhere in us that time is going to be used to meet the needs of others. You cannot be a good Samaritan without time. And not only did he take time, he took resources. He took resources. It says here he used his own oil, his own wine. He used his own bandages, verse 34. Then he used his own animal. I mean, look at verse 34, all these resources the guys had. Oil, wine, bandages, an animal. Then he goes to a hotel because he couldn't provide that. So what does he do? Then he takes his money and he gives it to denarii. And he drops it, two, two full working days wages. This guy worked his job and took two days out of his paycheck and dropped it on the counter at the innkeeper. And then he looks at him and says, hey, if he overspends this, I'm basically opening up an account. Here's the cash. If he overspends, I'll come back. Resources. Resources. Folks, the two fundamental things it takes to care for people is time and money. Now, I'm interested only this morning, you may think, I'm interested only this morning in one phrase. You said, I wish you'd have said that from the beginning. But there's one phrase that grabbed my heart this week that I'm going to end this with. And it's the very last phrase of the story. Watch it. Go and do likewise. And I'm going to tell you that at River City Baptist Church, we are going to offer you every opportunity in the world to do just that. And the world is watching. And the world is wondering. I've been text messaging a, a, a young lady that we met at, at, at Lake Lucina Elementary School just this past week. And she's a single mom. Aaron was there with me. Single mom bringing her four kids over to the school. She, she took a business card and she watched the uh, five minutes that could change your life video that I shared with her. And, and I've been talking to her all week. And interestingly enough, her entire religious background is, is, is basically non-religious at all. Moved here just not too long ago. And she, in a message to me this week, said, Pastor, I just really have a hard time coming to church. I want to. And, I, and I'm hoping that, she said, I quote, I'm hoping River City is not like this, but... And she listed out all the things that has happened. At the very center of what she was wondering, the very center of what she is actually asking about is essentially what is your church doing for the vulnerable and needy people in your community? It's a very good question. I was pleased to be able to provide her some answers. And we're in an ongoing communication right now. Folks, listen. People that are outside of these walls don't know Jesus. The only way they're going to know Jesus is if somehow they see Jesus in us. And they're not going to see it because you wave a Bible in, your, uh, in their face and you boycott their favorite thing because they don't do it like you. They're probably going to see it when we start showing the compassion that Jesus has on them. How else are they going to know who he is? So I'm going to give you right now so many ways that you can get involved with this that you have no excuse. No excuse. And, and I mean, they're immediate. In fact, after the service today, you're going to receive an email 
and a text message as soon as this service is over where you're going to have an opportunity as soon as the service is over to literally sign up for one or all of these things. And it's a way for us to exercise compassion in our community. First of all, an easy softball when we have vacation Bible school, June 27th through 29th. It's our way to show the children of our community that we're here for them, that we have a program for them, that we love them. Last year we did our very first one. I know you say, well, churches do this all the time. But we hadn't done this before, and we had about 70 children come to this, I think, last year.